Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Tonight we are in the New Testament. Open your Bibles to the New Testament if you have it with you. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 3, verse 16. I don't know if you ever heard of that, John 3, 16. We're also going to be in Acts chapter 2. Uh, a little bit later on. So if you want to open your Bibles to those places, if you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the guys dancing up and down the aisles right now, <laughs> and they will get one to you. Um, <clears throat> let's, why don't we do this? Let's pray, and then uh, we'll get into our message. I'll pray first, and, and then we'll get into it. So, uh, Father, we, we know that you're here, and we do thank you, Lord, for uh, calling us to be a part of your church, and we thank you for this house in this place, Lord, that is a refuge and a sanctuary. And we thank you for your presence here that we sense uh, tonight and, and as we do week by week, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. And, and Father, as we turn our hearts tonight towards heaven and towards your word, we just put everything before you, Lord. We, we know that we just passed through an election season and that means nothing to you, Lord, but it, it, it affects us. And so, Lord, we just pray for our nation. We pray for our churches. We pray for our county, our country. We pray for our families. Uh, We pray for the future of what you're doing in your kingdom and and its place upon this world right now. And we ask you, Lord, that we would be awake, that we would be alive, that we would be vigilant, sober, that we'd be loving one another, that we'd be unified, that we'd be anointed, filled with your spirit, that we'd be walking in your path and in your truth. And Lord, we ask that tonight, Lord, what you have intended for this time in your word, Lord, that you would bring all of that forward. So we place ourselves before you and we thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. And we ask your blessing on us now. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So our last time together, which for me was two weeks ago, we began a new series of studies in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. I'm calling the series Devoted, the Life and Teachings of Paul. And, uh, and, I, and I shared with you in that opening message last time um, that, that, that really Paul's life and really any devoted life uh, breaks down into the seven seas. And so you've heard of the seven seas geographically, the seven oceans, uh, but there are seven seas that are common to every uh, devoted life. And uh, not S-E-A-S, like oceans, but just the letter seas. And, um, and so quickly what they are is that there is a context, uh, there is a conversion, there is a cultivation There is a calling, there is continuance, there is a culmination, and there is a crown. And those things are common, those things are uh, existent in every life of every person that God calls. And as we go through and study the life of Paul in the book of Acts, and then uh, possibly after that in some of his teaching, uh, we will see all of those things played out in him, um, but then also hopefully we're seeing our lives through the lens uh, of all of that as we relate it to our own experience and the things that God is doing and has done for us and is doing in us. Uh, And so tonight, as we uh, venture into this, I'm going to take you into the first sea. So if you'd get on the ship with me, we are going to uh, go right in uh, to the sea of context in this whole thing. I looked up the word context in the dictionary. I actually first tried to write my own definitions and I thought mine were really good. And then I looked at the dictionary and I said, now that's still better. So uh, the dictionary defines context as the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, 
or idea and in terms of which can be fully understood and assessed. So context, what it does is that it provides information that leads to a complete understanding of a thing, an event, or a situation. Context. And context is extremely important because context can either magnify an event, a fact, or a situation, or it can marginalize an event, a fact, or a situation. And and so context is super important in an understanding of anything. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but headlines and highlights do not provide context. (laughs) Anybody say amen to that? Do I have any news readers in here that you know that headlines don't provide context? context. In fact, headlines and highlights often intentionally lack context because when you don't have context, you are left to your imagination or your own interpretation of the world around you to fill in the context and make it up. And and so you come up with assumptions and all kinds of crazy things. I was reading some of today's headlines. And uh, let me tell you uh, the headlines. Let me tell you what's going on in our world as of today. This is a true headline from today. That the people of Virginia voted to affirm white supremacy. (laughs) Did you know that? That 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 is in our nation. That the people of West Virginia actually voted to affirm white supremacy. Now that completely lacks context. Okay, the context of that article and of that headline that was put forward is that there were two people vetting for vying for leadership positions and one of them supports a particular uh, position that schooling and education is taking, and another one does not support that position uh, for, for reasons that we're not going to get into tonight. But context is very important, because if you just read that headline, then you would come to a wrong conclusion. Here's another one. Christmas, there's a Christmas, no, this is the exact headline. It's Christmas tree shortage causing price to soar. Okay, now I know about the container ships. I know about the supply line situation. Okay, but Christmas trees did not stop growing. Christmas trees did not get COVID, okay? There, there is not an influx in the hospitals of Christmas trees, and they all died off. There's no short. Do you, now you read the article, and, and in context, you know what happened? Here's the article. There was a wildfire in California that affected one town, near Sacramento, California. That's what the article goes on to say. And in one town near Sacramento, they may have to pay a little bit more for a Christmas tree (laughs) this year. But that's not what the headline leads you to believe. Do you understand how important context is, okay? Now, usually in that realm of media and headlines, context marginalizes the fact, okay? It makes it unimportant. How many now don't even read articles anymore because when you read the headline, you already know that that's not what that article says because you know that the context is going to marginalize what's being put forward, okay? Now, let's take it to God's word. God's word puts forth facts, ideas. It gives to us 
truths. Those truths also fit within a certain context, a body of information that lends itself to give understanding to the thing that is putting forward. Okay, let me give you an example. The Bible declares to us in John chapter 2 that Jesus turned water into wine. That's a headline. That's a summary, a heading over a segment of scripture, okay? Now, when you then go in and read the context behind it, it doesn't marginalize it and make it less than what it is. It actually magnifies it. It makes it even more. Because when you read the facts and the story around what's being put forward in that segment of scripture, it actually says that the, 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 um, the person who was sponsoring the feast said that most people put out the good wine first, but you have saved the best for last. And so what that does is it magnifies what Jesus did to show not only the miraculous element of turning water into wine, but also the method of God to make things greater and better over time, not to put the best forward first, and then you find out that it's actually not what it lives up to later on. And so it magnifies the truth when God gives the context, okay? Context, biblically, magnifies his grace, his goodness, his power in our lives, because it shows us that God is greater with time. Now, a proper understanding of the life of the Apostle Paul, God's hold upon that man, his message, his teaching, his testimony, begins with the context in which it all happened. And if we don't understand the context of Paul's story, then what we will do is we will marginalize it in terms of what we will believe God to do in our lives. Because we will think of Paul as being a special case. Well, Paul was unique. Paul was not me. God did for him something, but God would never do the things that he did for Paul in my life. And we will assume, we will insert the context, if we don't know the context, into the story that that is not me. He was special. And so that leads me to a point I want to make here at the beginning of this series of studies. And that is this, is that our purpose in going through these things is not merely or primarily academic. I do not want to give you facts and make you well-versed in these things. That's probably going to happen. I hope that it does, but it is not my purpose and my hope. My hope is not academic, but application. All right, I want you and I to realize that this is what God does in human beings. This is his desire. This is his design. This is what life looks like. This is what it was made for, not just Paul and the trophy of the Bible, but what God wants to do in every one of us as well. We know that there are very few persons whose entire life is laid out for us in, in biblical terms, relatively. We know a lot of Bible names. We know a lot of events and, and pieces, but there are a few, their whole story is laid out for us. And Paul is one of them. And the reason for those that God has chosen to give us the whole story is not because they are trophies, but because they are testimonies. This is God saying, this is what I want to do in your life. This is what I do. It's how I do it. And so 
These things that we study answer questions for us. It answers the question of what God wants to do in our lives, what he wills for our lives. It gives us insight into what he is doing right now. Why are we going through the things that we are? It explains for us how he does what he does when he works in our lives. It explains why he does what he does in our lives. That's a big question. We say, why God? Often. It also tells us what part we play in the whole picture of story of God, of what God is doing. And this will be our emphasis as we move forward. Now, in terms of context, when we talk about the context of God's work in Paul's life, his devotion and where it came from and where it ended up, it has exactly two halves. Context has two halves. The first half is God's part, the context from God's perspective, and the other part is the context from Paul's individual perspective or the individual life to which God is uh, reaching or that he's working in. And so tonight, I want to talk about the context of a devoted life from the perspective of God. That is, what are the circumstances that form the setting for the event or the thing that is our relationship with God? What is the context of it from his perspective? And so in order that we might have context and not fall prey to a pretext, I want to take you to the protext. Do you know what the protext is? It's John 3.16. It's that famous verse that even if you've never seen a Bible, you have seen somewhere on a sign, a sticker, a t-shirt, something that says John chapter 3, verse 16. Let me read it to you now, if you even need me to. You can follow along with me if you want. But it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. John chapter 3, verse 16, is the most well-known, most quoted, most memorized, most famous verse in the entirety of the Bible. And the reason for that is because that one verse is the fullest explanation of God and his plan for humanity in the fewest possible words. If you were to put that to a context, to summarize the Bible in one sentence or two, it would be John chapter 3, verse 16. If you unpack John chapter 3, verse 16, to its furthest explanation, you would get Genesis 1-1 through the end of Revelation chapter 22. Because tucked into the simple truth that's put forward in John 3.16 is the truth of the entire Bible all wrapped up in a single seed in a single word. And tucked in it is the complete context of the devoted life and what it looks like. You say, why is that? And here's the answer. Because before one can be devoted to God, God must first make provision for it. And that's what John chapter 3, verse 16 explains to us. When I was uh, 16 years old, my wife at the time was 17 years old. I liked older women at that time, apparently. <laughs> 
But for obvious reasons, she was something. I mean, she was just amazing. I don't want to get into it because I'll never stop talking about uh, her in that season. But I was so infatuated. I had a major crush on her. And, And fate would have it that we would go on a class trip and I worked my way near her on the bus and began flirting and our flirtation turns into a friendship and our friendship turned into a bond. We hit it off right away and uh, it, was, it was thrilling and it was exciting, but it was nerve wracking as, as, as young love can be at that age, you know. And she was just way out of my league. She still really is, you know, but I was like kind of the ugly duckling, the late bloomer, you know, and she was just, I don't, she's so embarrassed right now, me saying all these things, but that's what it, that's what it was like. And I remember just like, it, it felt almost dangerous because I was liking her. The crush was so hard and I thought she would never, ever be interested in me, but we kept getting closer and I was kind of flirtatious by nature. And we weren't raised in in Christian homes, so we didn't have like the leave room for the Holy Ghost, uh, like influence in our, in our uh, uh, interactions. And so, so I remember a a certain moment that we were sitting in a meadow by my house and it was like picturesque. It was like right out of a movie. And we were sitting there in this quiet place in the moment. It was perfect to make a move. It was perfect to try to go in for the first kiss. And my heart was beating. It was beating because what if she, you know, what if she says, no, 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 let's back down, you know? And, and, and what was going on inside of me was why would she be interested in me? And I didn't do it. My senses got the best of me and I did not make the move that day. I found out later that she was hoping that I would, <laughs> but I didn't because because my intuition was what interest would she have in me? And subconsciously, I believe that that is the intuition that most people have towards God. If God, like the Bible puts forward, sees all, knows all, reads thoughts, there's nothing hidden from him, all things are naked before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And all of humanity intuitively, innately knows that if there's an all-powerful God that's true about him, then why would he be interested in me? Because even I don't like the most barren, natural version of me. I like the clothed up, painted kind that I show to everybody else, maybe. But why would God be interested in me? And that's how we think. That's what we think. We think, well, God, you don't have any interest in me. But John 3.16 begins by telling us the exact opposite. It says that God so loved. And the kind of love that it speaks of that God loves with is a different kind of love than any kind of love that any human being has ever known or experienced or even comprehended or thought of. It's a different kind of love. It's God's motive. It's what moved God to create the world and create man in the first place is the fact that God had love and wanted an object of free will made in his image that he could make the object of his love. And the love that God has, the love that God is, motivated him to create man in the first place. So the love of God begins it all. He initiates it. God so loved the world. And the reason why God did everything that he did is because he loves you. That's the beginning. That's the motive. And if you want to understand that type of love, then you read 
the second most famous passage in the Bible, which is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, was where it describes that kind of love, that love is patient and love is kind, that it envies not, that it vaunts not itself. It doesn't show off. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave itself unseemly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't think the worst. It doesn't think evil. It thinks the best. It hopes the best. It doesn't rejoice when you fall. It rejoices in truth, sincerity, what you really are. It bears all things. That means it stands up under tremendous pressure. It believes all things. It hopes and trusts and has faith and is solid. It endures all things, even the things that try to knock it down. And finally, the first three words of the verse eight, it says that love never fails. That's the kind of love that God has, as it says, towards the world. You say, well, why does God love humanity that way? The answer is because that's who God is. First John chapter four, verse eight says that God is love. He that loveth not knoweth not God because God is love. It's an elementary facet of who he is. It's his person. And he loves the world, which means that it's all inclusive. Now I want to pause here and I want to say this is that the fact that God loves the world doesn't necessarily mean that God always favors the world. Because sometimes you can love someone and yet not be in their good graces. Amen? Amen. Sometimes you could really love someone and be really angry with them at the same time. You can love someone and there can be a rift in the relationship. And it doesn't stop the fact that you love them. But it, it absolutely breaks fellowship. Psalm 711 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. So it's possible for God to be angry and against even someone that he loves. And so the problem with God's love translating to a world that doesn't know that love is that most of humanity, who is the object of God's love, is in a condition that's fallen, estranged, lost, separated from God. And so because of that, they don't know the love of God and they don't believe in the love of God. But God's love motivated him to an action. It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. His love moved him to do something. It was the sacrificial offering of his only begotten son as a substitutionary sacrifice to put away the sin of the world that he loved. In other words, God saw the fallenness of man. He saw the separation and the rift that existed in the relationship between humanity and himself. He knew, as it says also in the Bible, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And yet creation, humanity had been clothed in darkness, filled with darkness because of the fall and because of sin. And the rift was there. But God's love didn't quit God's love didn't cause him to resign and destroy and start over. Rather, God's love motivated him to initiate a solution to the problem. And it was a solution that went to the furthest possible place imaginable. Is that he gave of himself a part of himself, the object of his greatest affection. He gave his son, Jesus, to come into the world as a human being in the fallenness of of creation, though he was not fallen himself. 
to walk as we walk, to be tempted with every temptation that we're tempted with, to face every difficulty and trial and to walk in our steps, to fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law perfectly every day of his life, but then to suffer at the very hands of those he loved, the the crucifixion of the cross, and in it, all of the wrath of God for sin being placed upon one who was innocent. And then as he gave up the ghost, he said, it is finished, paid in full. That the whole reason why God gave his son was to pay the price that sin costs. He gave an offering of his son to pay a debt that we couldn't pay. And so love's action qualifies and defines the level and the type of love that God has. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God didn't just say, I love you. God didn't just whip out his checkbook and cheaply write something that that didn't hurt him at all, but God demonstrated it in giving the best thing, the only thing that would matter. I want you to think about it for a minute. When you give something in order to get something. In other words, like, let's just say you want to buy a car, right? You're, you want something that you don't have and you're going to give something. We'll call it money in order to get something, the car. Then in order for you to pay that price, it means that what you're getting, you love equally or more than what you're giving. Because if you love having that money more than you love having the car, you don't buy it. You say, it's not worth it. I don't want it. But when you buy something, when you pay a price, it means that you want that something equally or greater than what you already have with you. Now, God didn't pay money. God gave his son in order to redeem you and bring you into a right right relationship with himself. Which means that the love that he has towards you is equal to that which he has for his son Jesus. The love that God had for you before you were saved, before you knew him, when you were at your worst, your darkest moment, when you were sinning the most, and when sin had the biggest grip upon your life, and you hated yourself, it was at that point that God said, it's worth it to me, to pay this in order to redeem you. Now, let's take it one step further because you guys like going one step further, right? What would happen if you wanted to buy the car and you wanted the car and so you were willing to pay the sum of money and so you say to the person who you're dealing with, you say, all right, I will give you X amount of dollars for the car and the person replies to you this way. They say, all right, let's do this. You pay the money And maybe I'll give you the car. We'll see. I'm going to leave it up to my free will. If I want to relinquish the keys, then I will. If not, then I won't. Would you still pay it? Not one of us would, right? Because it's not a guarantee. No, no, no. I am not going to part with that which is precious to me if there's no guarantee that I'm going to receive the thing that I am putting forth the price in order to obtain, I'm not going to do that. But that's exactly what God did. Because even though he paid the price in putting forth his son upon the cross in order to redeem you, 
it is not a guarantee that you will receive what he did for you and that the transaction will take in your life and that you will be redeemed back to him. Which means that God so loved you that he gave his son for you without the guarantee that he would actually even get you. It was worth it to him to that point to demonstrate his love. That is a different kind of love than the kind of love we use when we talk about ice cream or, you know, when we tell someone we love them before we put a knife in their back. It's a little bit different. The price that God paid was his son. And God gave all of himself in his son in a way that we can't understand. And I spent some serious time trying to figure this out this week. And what it actually means that God was in Christ when Jesus, the only begotten son of God, he was eternally existent with the father. He was there in the beginning. All things were made by him and without him, nothing was made that was made. He was there in the beginning and yet he was begotten through a virgin 2,000 years ago and 4,000 years into the history of man. And how does that work? And what does that mean? And I don't get it. But what I do get is that God gave of himself and he gave all of himself as a demonstration of his love towards humanity, a sacrifice for our sin. Who did he do it for? It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whoso, whos, no, no, no. He died for good people. He died for good people. He died for people that had sense. He died for people that had enough brains to to be able to realize a good deal when they see it. He died for sensible people that choose light and, and, you know, that understand the difference. No, no, no. It says whosoever. That's pretty inclusive, wouldn't you say? God died for all. It doesn't say He died for whatever good and sensible and moral and lucky people might happen to stumble upon the message. Do you know that sin is an equal opportunity destroyer? When Adam sinned in the garden of Eden, sin as a condition entered him. And thus it entered all of us because we all descend from Adam. And some of us were brought up in environments and situations where sin did not get a full and deathly grip upon us at an early age. Do you know what we call those people? Good people. That's what we call them. Good people. Because they were brought up with a wholesome environment and a set of morals and the, knowing the difference between good behavior and bad behavior and making good choices and bad choices. That doesn't mean you're not a sinner. It just means that you were educated and sin didn't get the death grip early on in your life. Now there are other people that it maybe aren't as fortunate or maybe their situation is different and sin gets a greater hold upon them. But do you know what? If you live long enough in a sinful condition, I don't care who you are or how you're brought up, you end up like Satan. That's the bottom line. It may take one person 20 years and it might take someone else 200 years. But eventually, if you have the condition of sin living inside of you and you do not have a savior, a Christ, the blood and the Holy Spirit, you will eventually be as bad as the devil. It just takes time. You say, not me. Yes, you. But God says he died for whosoever, which means that the person that you think could never be saved, you might be the person here tonight that thinks that you could never be saved because of what you've done or what's gone on in you or what's happened to you. The Bible says whosoever. That means everyone. 
So where is the meeting place where God's love engages a lost person? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him. Do you see that word believes? Belief or faith is the place where God's love engages a lost person. Now I want to define this for you because John does not in this verse. What does it mean to believe in him? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Believe does not mean that you believe in God that you believe in heaven, that you believe in the origin that the Bible says is the origin of, of things. It does not mean that you believe the truth of the Bible or that Jesus exists or existed as a person. Now, yes, all of that is included in belief, but none of that is what John means when he says believes. It's to believe all of that, but that's not far enough. Then, okay, Then, this is belief, then it means to believe that God made you, to believe that God loved you, to believe what God says about you, that you are fallen, unable, and lost apart from him, and then to believe that God willingly paid for your sin and now offers his salvation to you freely as a gift, but he doesn't force it upon you. And then... That belief leads you to receive what God says that he did for you. That's what it means to believe. It's not, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe in the Bible. Okay, good, good. That's a great starting point. Do you believe what God says about you? Do you believe what God says about who Jesus is? Do you believe that you needed Jesus to die on a cross for you because there's no way that you could save yourself apart from what he did for you? Do you believe that it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his grace and mercy that he saved us? Do you believe that it's by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast? Do you know that you are lost without hope, alienated from the life of God? And that only Jesus and faith in what Jesus did in receiving the gift that God gave in presenting his son to you, that is what it means to believe. To believe means to receive by faith, to trust fully in him, to take the place of you in sin and to do it by grace. John would say previously in John chapter one, verse 14, he would say to as many as received him to believe is to receive to as many as received him to them gave he the right to be called the children of God. It means to fully trust him, to forsake all other paths, all of your own works, all other religions, all other attempts, and to trust him only as your redeemer and your God. And that faith is the place where God's love reaches your heart. That's what it means that it says, whosoever believes in him. And here's the result. When a person chooses Jesus and receives what God did on their behalf, It says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, here's what it is, should not perish. That means you will not die, but that you will have eternal life. Now that sounds redundant, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like he's just saying the same thing, one positive, you won't die, but you will live. It's actually two different things. The first one speaks of the eternality of your life, that you will never die. But the second one speaks of the quality of the life that he gives you in place of that. 
It isn't just that you continue as you are eternally. That would almost be worse. I mean, how many of us want to live forever in a fallen condition, right? I'm sick of myself already, (laughs) right? And if I had to live in this state forever, that's why God blocked access to the tree of life after the fall. He put the angel there with the flaming sword because, you know, Adam's like, wait, and, and, and God's like, no, no, you don't want to live like that. Just finish your course, believe, trust, take the clothing, and, and you'll get to glory. You'll be changed. You don't want to live forever in that state. Okay? So when you believe in Jesus, not only are you granted an eternal life, but the life that God gives you immediately in that moment is a different quality of life. Notice the word have in the verse. Do you see it? It says that they will have eternal life. It doesn't say that they will obtain it, that they'll get it later. It doesn't say that they're going to get a coupon that they check in one day and then it will be granted to them. No, he says that it's something that you will be given even right now. First John chapter five, verse 12, it says that he who has the son has life. That you're given that life in the moment that you have the son. John chapter five, verse 24 Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Watch this, but is passed from death unto life. It's not what will be, it what is right now. Paul would say it this way in Philippians chapter three, verse 21, he would say, our citizenship is in heaven right now. He doesn't say it will be when you die, but you are given a visa, a passport, a green card. (laughs) You have a citizenship, a membership. You are in your life in him begins now. It's the quality. You say, well, the quality of my life ain't that great. And I accepted Jesus a long time ago. So what gives on that? How does all that work? I was reading and I want to share this passage with you because it really impacted me. Deuteronomy chapter six, just a a small portion of it here, because I think it sheds light on what this means. What does it actually mean to have life now? The kind of life that God gives now. Listen to to what Moses wrote um, to God's people in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter six, beginning in verse four. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's what you're to do. You give yourself in full and complete devotion to him. And then, verse 6, And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently unto your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Okay, so he says, here's what you're to do. This is what God is asking of you, to put your full weight of devotion and love upon him. Set your affection upon the God who made you and completes you and loves you. Love him back, respond to his love. And then set his word upon your heart. Get so familiar with who he is as is revealed to every one of us. Right now we have, we have the heart of God in black and white and red at our access all the time, as often and as much as we want. And he says, get to know him. 
Write it. Get, it. get to know him so much that it's in your heart. You don't have to look it up. You know what it is. You know who he is. That There's a network of truth that's in you because his word is such a part of you. Make it such a part of you that it comes out at your dinner table because that's what's in you. From the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. When you're walking with your kids in the woods, that it comes out. Look at what God made. Look at how the seed works. Watch how the water always flows down. Look at all of the speaks of God. God's in all of it. Speak of it when you're walking by the way. When you sit at your table, when you lie down to go to sleep, let it be what's coming out of your mouth then. When you rise up in the morning, let the word of God just get in you in every way. And then on top of that, he says in verse eight, he says that you will bind them for a sign upon your hand. What does that mean? What do you do with your hands? It's your actions, that the word of God then dictates and determines the course of action that you take with your life. The way you work, the way you relate to people, the way you raise up a family, the way you live, let the word of God be what defines, determines, and makes that, writes that into the fabric of your being. Not only what you uh, do with your hand, upon your hand, but they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, that you're seeing the world through the network of God's truth, not through the networks of television stations and what people are telling you of how you should see the world. No, you see it through the network of God's truth, what he says about humanity, what he says about politics, what he says about the future of the world, what he says about people, not what people say about people, that you bind his word as that which you interpret the world by. And then you shall write them upon the posts of your house. What are the posts of your house? It's what holds your house up. It's the foundation. Meaning that you're building your house, your family, your worldview, your outlook, your retirement, your goals, what you're headed for, your direction, all of what affects the people in your life. You're, you're letting the word of God determine it upon the posts of your house. And watch this. And upon your gates. Do you know what the gates are? Two things. In the Bible, it's where you make decisions, and it's also the place of security. So the way you make decisions is you're saying, well, what does God say about this? What's the right, what's the kingdom principle? What's the constitution of God say about how we should handle this situation or the way we should, should make this decision? But it's also the security. Are you trusting God for your security in the day and age in which we live? Where is your security? What is the gate? Is it your guns? Is it your cash? Is it your prepping? Your, your, is, it what, is it your politics? I hope not. You trust God as the gates, that the word of God, that he says that he's going to protect you. And watch this, verse 10. Watch, ready? Verse 10. And it shall be. Do you see that word? Shall. It shall be. All right, back we, we saw you have eternal life. He that has the son has life. If you believe in him, you've passed from death to life. You have it. But here it says something about shall be. It says it shall be when the Lord, your God shall have brought you into the land, which he swear unto your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and goodly cities, which you built not and houses full of all good things, which you filled not, and wells digged that you dig not, vineyards and olive trees, which you planted not. 
And when you have eaten and are full, here's what God's saying. He's saying, listen, you set your affection upon God. You write his word upon your heart. You let his way determine your courses of action. You see the world through the lens of his truth and what he says. And it's coming. Okay, it's going to catch up with you. Read Deuteronomy chapter 28 when Moses declares the blessings and the curses. He declares emphatically, he says, if you walk in God's ways, then all of these blessings that he has spoken are going to overtake you like a wave. Which means that when you set your life in this direction, it's coming. It's coming. What? I don't know, but you're going to like it. All right, because he describes it here as cities that you didn't, that you didn't uh, build, houses that you didn't build, gardens and vineyards, wells, olive trees, to the point where you have eaten and you're full, where you look at your life and you say, I don't know how it happened, God. I don't know how I got here. I didn't believe it could be. But thank you for what you've done in my life and what you're doing in my life. And your word tells me that this is just the beginning because you're the God who saves the best for last. Verse 12, then beware. Lest you forget the Lord which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. For you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall swear by his name. Then stay there. Don't move away. Stay in that place of devotion. See, it's a quality of life. You shall not perish, but have eternal life. Set your affection on God. He begins doing a work in you. Now, I want to give you one more word. I'm going to shift gears for a minute in terms of the context from God's perspective, and then we're going to close. We know that God, through his son Jesus, has made the platform and the way whereby we can be reunited in relationship with him. It's in the place of faith in his son and what Jesus did. But there's something else that God also provided. Because Jesus said prior to his death, He said that the father is going to send the spirit in a new way that you haven't experienced before. There's a promise coming. There's a baptism coming. There's a fire coming. There's an expression coming. There's a presence coming. There's a power that's coming that you have not known yet. That those in the Old Testament longed to see the days of and haven't seen it. And it's not going to come until I go. And when I rise, the father will send the spirit in my name. And Jesus would say that he is with you and he will be in you and he will come upon you. He is with you. That's his presence. Have you ever been in the room with someone that just has presence? They walk in the room and they've done something. In, you know, in, in their life, they've made an impact. There's something about them. They have a weight. There's something more to their person than just their, 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 their bodily appearance. They have presence. You ever been around someone that has presence? When Jesus says that he will be with you, you have presence, okay? Because when God is with you and you walk in a room, you have presence. He says that he'll be with you. He also says that he'll be in you. That's fellowship. When the spirit of God is in you, there's an intimacy in a communion, which means that the level on which you are communicating with God is on the level of your thoughts 
and your feelings and your emotions and your knowledge and the connection between what you're seeing and interpreting and the way all of that, he's in you and there's a relationship and it's growing and there's depth and it's personal and it's sweet and it's real and it's growing. He's with you. And then he says that he'll be upon you. What does it mean that he'll be upon you? Luke chapter 24, verse 49. It's going to go up on the screen. Jesus said this. He says, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus would say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. See, when the spirit is with you, you have his presence. When he's in you, you have his fellowship and relationship. When he's upon you, you have his power in your life. And what he has placed in you in terms of the way that you work, live, what you do, what your gifts are, when the spirit empowers those things, stuff happens. He'll give you power. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, the spirit came. The promise was released. Jesus said to wait. And when they waited, the spirit came and their lives were immediately and powerfully impacted. Now for time's sake, I'm not going to read to you the first seven or eight verses of Acts chapter two. Most of you are probably familiar with what they say. But essentially what it says is that they, when they were in the room assembled with one mind and they were praying, it says suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the sound of a rushing mighty wind. And the spirit of God came upon them and cloven tongues of fire sat upon them and they began to worship God and speak with other languages. And there was a mighty wave, a mighty flowing of God's spirit that was poured out that day in Jerusalem. And it was so impactful that they immediately went down into the streets and all of the people that were gathered for the feast of Pentecost that were in Jerusalem saw them come and they realized the presence and they sensed the power was in these lives. And in Acts chapter two, verse 12, all of the people that were in Jerusalem looked at it and they asked a question. They said, what does this mean? What does this mean? Everybody say it. Right. What does this mean? They saw the power. They saw the presence. They saw the spirit. They saw something real, something alive. And they said, what does this mean? And Peter rose up and he began to preach. And he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions and on my servants and handmaids will I pour out my spirit in those days, says the Lord. And the sun will be turned to sackcloth and the moon to blood before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. And this is just what was spoken by David when God spoke through David and said that Christ would die, but that he would rise again. And now Jesus has risen again and he has poured out his spirit upon the world. And he's here in power to redeem because the price has been paid. And then they asked the second question. The second question came in Acts chapter two, verse 37. Not what does this mean? But now they know what it means. They said, what shall we do? What do we do? And the answer of Peter answers the question. And it brings us into context. He said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. See, God didn't just provide the price of salvation through his son on the cross. He also provided the presence, the person, and the power of the Holy Spirit to dwell with, to dwell in, and to be upon each of his people. Which means that God didn't just prepare a thing, a check, a transaction, salvation, profess Christ. That's where it begins. But then the person is filled with God, walks with God, knows God, is empowered by God. And do you notice that the promise is to all? It isn't just for a few, it's for all. He goes on to say, and with any, many other words, it says that he did testify and exhort saying, save yourselves from this perverse generation. And watch this. Then they that gladly received his word. Do you see that again? See, that's, that's faith. That's belief. It's not, just, it's not just knowledge. It's not in the head. It's in the heart. It's received. They let it in. It got past the surface. It, it bridged the gap, the 18 inches from the brain to the heart. It affected every part of their life that they received his word and they were baptized and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Do you know what happened that day? The church was born. Do you know what the church is? Context. Context. It, it's the surrounding environment. It's the surroundings it's the truth. It's the place. It's what's been provided by God. It's the nursery wherein the people of God, after they're redeemed, are born into. It's the kingdom that we now are citizens of, though we are yet on earth. It's the place wherein it's the pillar and the ground of the truth, as Paul will call it later. It's the place where we relate to God. It's what we've been called into. It's what we are. It's not a building. It's not a denomination. It's not a sect. It's the body of people that God has saved, that have received him and come into a place of faith. And listen, this is the context from God's vantage point of the devoted life. What does that mean? It means that through his son, Jesus, God provided the means for you to be in a relationship with him where you are receiving and giving him love, knowing him, relating to him and experiencing his presence. That's all done by Jesus. And that God has provided the church as the body, the place, the kingdom, wherein you are brought up, wherein you are related to other believers and linked to them. And where as a body of people, we know God and grow in this thing we call Christianity, or as we're calling it in this study, the devoted life. And just like God prepared Eden before he placed Adam in it, God has prepared the context for a devoted life before he ever called Paul or any one of us into it. God has made away for the redeemed. It's the framework and the context in which relationship with God happens. And as it was for Paul, so it is with us. It's the same God. 
It's the same family. It's the same church. We are all part of the same thing that Paul was. Musicians, you can come. You guys missed your cue. Andrew, I don't know if you're sleeping back there or what, but you're like a clock on it. It's also the same opportunity for you and I. We have the same opportunity that Paul had, the same process that Paul went through, the same access that Paul had to God, and a similar experience. It's not the same. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Because the other half of the context is not God's doing in providing his spirit, his salvation, his blood. But the other part of the context is your story. It's what God has done and brought you through to get you to the place where you then enter into the other six C's. Conversion, cultivation, calling, continuance, culmination, and crown. And for every one of us, it's different. And Paul has a context. And we're going to look at it next time as we go. We'll get into it. Every one of us has it. Listen, there is no life like the one that God has prepared and ordained. And if you're not in it, get in it. To as many as received him, to them gave he the right to be called the children of God. It isn't enough to say, I believe in Jesus. It isn't enough to say, okay, I have joined a church or I believe or I want. No, no. Have you received it? He said, God, I realize that you paid an amazing price through the person of your son, Jesus, in order to redeem me back to you. And you did that because you love me and you did it not even knowing if I would really respond. I might be too proud. I might be too self-sufficient. I might be too in myself, not wanting to be a part of that thing or those people. But God, I want to receive it. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. And maybe your devotion's been halfway. You've said, all right, well, you know, some, but not all. I've, I know he loves me, but I don't know if I've given my love, my devotion, my fullness to him. His word, eh, take it or leave it. When I want to, it's here or there. Would you guys stand with me? I just want to pray over you as a church. That wherever you are in this thing of coming in, that you would receive all that he has. Father, we just come to you tonight. We thank you, Lord, for your, your way. We thank you for your cross. We thank you for your love. And we do ask and pray, Lord, even right now, that you would pour out your spirit in such a way that everyone here would know it, Lord. From the person that doesn't know you at all and has no, no background with you to the person, Lord, who's been walking with you for a very long time. I pray, Lord, that you would take that greater place within us. Thank you for what you've provided through Jesus, through your spirit, through your church. And we ask you, Lord, that you would complete and continue the work that you're doing in us. So help us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.